Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Fisher Broyles is an overnight success that's been 20 years in the making. Founders and managing partners James Fisher and Kevin Broyles currently have a lot to celebrate. The firm just entered the AMLAW 200 with a 14% increase in revenue over 2019 and the addition of 51 partners in 2020. This is notable because Fisher Broyles has no offices, no associates, and no secretaries, what James Fisher calls the headwinds of profitability. As such, it's the first distributed firm to crack big law ranks and a truly transformative take on the business of law. Their model is not for every firm, or even most firms, but at a time when firms are deciding what their new normal looks like, Kevin and James are sticking with the status quo they established when they founded their firm in 2002, and they have aggressive plans for growth. Founded during the tech bubble implosion of the early aughts, Fisher Broyles has survived and thrived through two eras of mass disruption for law firms, the recession in 2008 and 09, and now the pandemic. In today's conversation, learn how Kevin and James met and spent their days during the tech bubble implosion. Spoiler alert, it wasn't doing deals, why they don't consider Fisher Broyles a virtual firm, and how the perfect storm of COVID-19 and their entry into AMLAW 200 is setting the stage for their plans for future growth. Hi guys, how are you? Hey, doing doing great, thanks. Good, thanks for joining. I'm joined today by James Fisher and Kevin Broyles of Fisher Broyles, the world's largest distributed law firm, if they have that right. Thanks guys for making the time. Yeah, You're welcome. Guys. So let's start by telling me what it means to you to be a distributed law firm. Notice I'm not using virtual because I know you don't approve of that. What does it mean to be distributed? It means we don't have a centralized location and the majority of our folks work from remote offices or remote locations with the client side. It's more of a peer-to-peer model than it is a centralized office in the middle where people come in to work every day. So it's a, you know, I like to call it a, a distributed semi-autonomous legal organization. And you guys don't like the term virtual, which I know some people use. Tell me why. Well, in the beginning, virtual, you know, is a little bit of a pejorative concept because it means something less than real. And we are very much a real law firm in every way, shape, or form, other than things that are antiquated. And Kevin and I will delve into that a little bit later on in the podcast. But yeah, we're we're a real partnership of almost 300 lawyers. Kevin, you got something to add to that? Yeah. yeah. So I would just point it out this way. During 2020, did Cyfarth go remote? Absolutely. Did Cyfarth become a virtual law firm just because it went remote in 2020? Or was it still the same law firm? It was, it, well, I don't know if it was the same law firm, but I take your point. Yeah. So that, that that's the best way to explain it. I mean, just because every law firm in the United States went remote in 2020 doesn't mean they became a virtual law firm. They became a distributed law firm in many respects. So congratulations, by the way, on becoming an AMLA 200 law firm. That's a great accomplishment. Thank but you. it's not like you're new to this business. You didn't just pop up. You've been doing this for 20 years. So it's not like the pandemic didn't trigger this or anything else. This was a vision you guys had what's now a very long time ago. Yeah. So tell me first, how did your paths cross? I see both of you worked at Morris Manning. Was that where you connected? That is. In fact, James started a week before I started and we were both 
recovering litigators at some point in our career and started doing technology transactions, although James had done transactional work longer than I had prior to going to Morris Manning, but that's where we met. We both had the same idea that we would you know, go in-house with some super hot, hot startup, get stock options and cash out millionaires. And Oh, the dot-com frenzy back yeah, at the turn so of the century, right? If the roller coaster was, you know, up here, that's where we joined Morris Manning. It was right there. And then, boom, you know, almost immediately it went down. And that's really what led to the formation of what is today Fisher Broils. We had a lot of time. James and I had a lot of time on our hands. A lot of attorneys did who were technology attorneys at the end of 2001 and the beginning of 2002. We actually I haven't talked about this in a long time, but one day at like, I think 1 p.m., James and I went to see a movie in the middle of the day because we had no work. Really, we went to see Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down, which was a great movie, uh, but you know we had nothing to do. But we also engaged in there's a certain There's a certain symmetry to that at the time, right? Black Hawk yeah. Down and the tech, the tech crash. <laughs> exactly. But we did have more productive meetings as well. We used to get together you know, at four or five for drinks, and we would talk about you know, what's going on? What's next? Uh, what's the future hold? And those conversations led to what is eventually the formation of a firm that has evolved over the last 19 years to become, you know, the AMLAW 200 Fisher Broils today. Yeah, we, we said in our offices, well, we didn't have much work and people were getting laid off right and left. And it gave us time to reflect and view the inefficiencies of the typical law firm model. And so many things that we were being sort of evaluated on or our profitability was being evaluated on that we just weren't using. And that's secretaries, office space, associates, all the things that didn't really add value to the client. And that noticing of inefficiency is what, you know, what our ideas grew from. And, you know, at the end of the day, Kevin and I decided that all clients want to pay for is what's between our ears. So... As Kevin likes to say, we put the old law firm in a clean room and dismantled it and put it back together with all the essential parts. Was anybody else doing anything similar to this? I assume, I don't know, I assume you guys had a desire to build scale and grow the business. Was anybody doing anything like this at the time? No, no. I mean, we, we, we were... We were the first. We had no, as, as far as we know, we were the first. And in the last 19 years, we have not discovered anyone else who started prior to 2002. So for us, it was very much a clean slate. We did not look over at, you know, this firm that was doing it this way. I know that the firm I had practiced at prior to Morris Manning was, was a little bit more lean. And I know Morris Manning was a little bit more entrepreneurial. So I think those things certainly influenced us. But we did not see any other firm that was doing anything this innovative at the time. So your core, when you started out, your core to pick up on what James was talking about was no office space or, or limited office space. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, no associates, no support staff. Heavily technology supported, I would presume. But we're now talking 20 years ago. It must have been a bit of a challenge at that time. I mean, it's not like it was the dark ages. But the communication technology was certainly not where it is today. How did you sort of manage at the start the remote communication necessary to sort of make this business model successful from the get-go? Well, it didn't really require a really sophisticated technology to be able to support your clients remotely. Because, I mean, all you really needed at the time was email and no one even really text back then. And 
we were really functioning the exact same way outside the office as we were functioning inside the office when we were in Morris County. So there really wasn't any difference. I mean, I guess we used e-fax more often back then, but I mean, other than that, no one really video conferenced even back then. And to be honest with you, until COVID hit, Fisher Broils didn't video conference that much. Now it seems like that's all we do, even on podcasts. James mentioned eFax. I was thinking eFax and Vonage were the two, you know, technologies that facilitated what we were doing. You know, and the great thing about Vonage was you could have it ring straight to your cell phone if you weren't in the office. So those two things were what we used. I mean, we needed a a scanner, a printer, eFax and Vonage. And a lot of the work we were doing was on client side. That was one of the original iterations of the firm was we'll be an in-sourced counsel to you. So let us come to your client side. And eventually it just evolved. We we had our first publicly traded client said, I, don't, I really don't care about that kind of stuff. Just send me an engagement letter because we would provide like consulting services agreements and you know, we were being innovative in ways that we didn't realize we didn't have to be. Our clients just said, we love your work. We love the rates. Just send us an engagement letter. And, and I know that James and I sat down at one point, probably within the first two years and just said, hey, I think we're just a law firm. You know, we're not some innovative consult. We don't need a fancy name or a, an odd name. We're just a law firm that's operating more lean and our clients like that. So that was a transformative realization for us that, you know, we, at that point, we thought we're, we're just going to be a law firm. We're going to compete with law firms. And tell me a little bit about how the growth has happened over the years. I assume it started with the two of you and probably just the two of you. Sounds sort of like a internet startup, right? A couple of guys well, working out of the garage <laughs> and building a successful business. It's more complicated than that. Uh, it started okay. with six. It started with six. James and I are the only two that remain. So, you know, people make decisions along the way and don't quite get the vision, but we're the two most consistent out of the first eight or nine to join. And I think when we hit 14, that was, I don't know why, but that seemed to be an important number because 14 quickly became 23 and then 23 became 35. Initially, our growth was just by word of mouth. We would pick up new partners from the relationships that they had with existing partners. And uh, James used to talk about the magic 100. If we could get to 100, that would really, you know, be a milestone. And and we got there and then it was a lot easier to get to 130. So um, we started using headhunters as well, but we are fishing in waters where the fish are very risk averse <laughs> as lawyers. So it takes a special entrepreneurial mind for a partner to leave the mothership and and plug into this distributed model. We think there are a lot of benefits to it, but it's it's not for everyone. But I believe we're on the verge of adding our 300th partner probably in the next few weeks. Congratulations. So, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. The first hundred took us probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. The second hundred took us a couple of years later. Yeah. Yeah. So success like does build on itself, doesn't yeah. it? Especially in a law firm setting, because so much of what people associate quality with is size. And uh, the larger we have grown, the easier it has been to get more and more sophisticated clients and more and more sophisticated partners. And the designation of Amlogic 100 and COVID together is sort of like a perfect storm because, number one, COVID has taught 
lawyers that working remotely isn't a big deal, that you can still practice law at the exact same high level. And then, you know, the MLA 200 is sort of a stamp of approval that the Fisher Burroughs Law Firm 2.0 model is legitimate and it's a mainstream way of practicing law. And we think it represents a paradigm shift in the way a lot of law firms are going to practice going forward. I mean, you can see it every day. They're toying with it on the edges. I like to call it innovation on the edges. They're arguing about how many days a week they're going to let people work remotely and this, that, and the other. And, you know, Kevin and I kind of sit back and chuckle because if you can let people work remotely two or three times a week, well, why not let them work remotely, you know, five days a week? It doesn't really make sense. Yeah, yeah the but, same, but, but, it, it, it doesn't reduce fixed cost if you only let your people work remotely part of the time. Fair enough. The other advantage I assume you guys chuckle at having is that you built your firm around this concept from the ground up. So it's not just office space. It's also reduced cost for administrative support and associates, which I assume are also key foundation blocks for your business model, if I'm interpreting it correctly. Yeah. One of the core building blocks of our firm is to not train young associates and build a client for training them like traditional law firms do. We don't do that. That's one of the things that we know that our clients didn't want, so we don't do that. They expect to have partner-level people and not the same old layered billing that they're used to receiving at the traditional law firm. Mm -hmm. so. There's an interesting point in there, and that is you have to have the right kind of people to work remote, and that's not just the lawyers. You have to have the support staff who are capable of working remote, and that's the one thing that we have built up over the last 19 years. We've got a great support team, accounting, conflicts, analysts, administrative, all of whom understand what it means to work from home and the responsibility that is required to be able to work remotely. The irony of a lot of what we read as the trend that AMLAW 200, traditional AMLAW 200 firms are taking now is every time you see a headline about an AMLAW 200 firm tinkering with working remote, it's usually about allowing the associates to work remote, which to me is the last thing you want to do because you want the people who are the most mature, who are able to work independently, be responsible, do not need supervision and oversight. Those are the people who should be working remote, not people who need oversight and training. So it appears to me that a lot of these firms that think they're being innovative are actually making their situation worse and more inefficient by saying, well, we're going to send first, second, third years home. Really? So they can play video games when they're supposed to be working? <laughs> yeah. so, another point you made in your statement that Kevin sort of says something related to is the idea that we build this from the ground up. One of our competitive advantages and one of the challenges traditional law firms have is that it's virtually impossible to convert a traditional law firm into a distributed law firm, mainly because you can't get buy-in from the top because it's against the upper echelon's financial interest to redistribute the model in the financial way we have. And I don't know if it could ever be done by a traditional law firm without, you know, everybody at the top quitting and starting over from trash. So we do have people, there are firms that are emulating what we're doing, but they've all been started from the ground up. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. I think it's you're you're absolutely right. It's very difficult for a traditional brick and mortar law firm to transition itself to a distributed 
model in any significant way. There's no question about it. When I look at your website, I see a, a pull-down menu called locations and dots pop up on the map. What does that mean? We have pay-as-you-go locations so that if you need to rent a conference room for a deposition, you can do it by the day or even by the hour. So we recognize that sometimes in certain practices, you need to meet face-to-face. -face. So we have those resources available in the various cities. So when you say rent as you go, what does that mean? It's an office suite. It, you go in and you, you reserve the conference room, and then they charge you by the hour to use the conference room. Oh, okay. And, and I can tell you that the best way, I had, a, I had an international client, and this was probably 15 years ago, uh, flew in from South America and said, I want to bring my D.C. lawyer to a meeting with you. And I said, that's fine. So I called in in Atlanta and I said, I want to rent the conference room for half a day. And they met me at the conference room and they walk in and there was a reception area and they know to ask for me and the person I've already checked in. So they know I'm there. And the client said, this is really great space that you have here. And I said, you know, what's really awesome about it. I'm not paying for it tomorrow. So, I mean, that's the concept. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. That's, that's now, another very important point. Part of the magic to our business model is we keep as much of our expenses on a variable cost basis as possible. So our expenses ebb and flow with our revenue and we never get upside down. One the, again, another unique, unique aspect about Fisher Rolls, which distinguishes us from, I would guess, any Amlaw to our firm is we have no debt and we never have. We bootstrapped from the beginning and we've never had to borrow money. We've been profitable from day one and we just are fiscally responsible in that way. The more things that we can expense on a variable cost basis, the better. And office space is one of those. Tell me the value proposition you articulate to your clients. I can see the value proposition to recruits <clears throat> and to partners. Mm -hmm. But what about the model resonates with your Fisher Broyles clients? So we tell them a few things. First, we say, you're going to have the attorney who's done your work for 15, 20, 25 years, who's done this hundreds, if not thousands of times doing the work. You're not going to have a first or second year doing the, the, the majority of the work that, you know, this other person that you trust then is reviewing while they're reviewing, you know, 500 other matters that are coming in from first and second years. You're going to have the person who's doing your work, who's your trusted legal advisor, have the autonomy to set your rate. So you never have to worry about the law firm pushing down on that partner to say, we need you to raise your rate another 5% this year. And you know those letters go out every January. Our partners have the autonomy to set their rates. We feel like they're in the best position to determine what's the proper rate for their clients. And we say, it's, gonna be, it's just gonna be more efficient legal services because you're not gonna have that pyramid structure where you have a first or second year and then a seventh or eighth year reviewing that, and then a partner that's been practicing 25 years looking at it. You're just going to have the partner who's been practicing 25 years. And we found that clients are kind of like U.S. citizens. They hate Congress, but they love their congressperson. So it's kind of like they hate their law firm, but they love their lawyer. So we say we're going to let your lawyer make the most decisions about how your practice is handled, how your needs are handled and what you're charged to handle those needs. A couple things in there I want to unpack. A key to that, I presume, is the way you've set up your compensation. 
which puts a lot of control in the hands of the partner in terms of how much they want to work and how much they bring in. And I can see how giving that flexibility in terms of rates translates directly into their own calculus, right? As to how much revenue they're bringing in, X for Y hours or Z for Q hours. Right. Yeah, you read my you read my mind because I was I was going to say we've been on the call now for twenty minutes and we probably haven't talked about the most important key to our distributed firm and that's the compensation model. That model, you're correct, allows partners to make a lot more than they make at a traditional law firm, which leads to more service partners being available. So you're never worried about having enough support. One of the questions we often get is, well, if you don't have associates, how do you get your work done? I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I was coming to that. <clears throat> yeah, the work's being done by someone who's been practicing law 15 to 25 years. They may not have their own clients, but they're perfectly happy because they're making so much of their billable rate. They, they make almost half of their billable, their collected billable rate. So when you're making that much money off of a, you know, four or $500 an hour rate, then you have 15 to 25 year partners who aren't concerned about having their own book and are more than happy to do work for other partners, clients. Yeah, the, the, the most innovative thing about Fisher Broils that distinguishes us from other individual law firms isn't really the fact that we don't have offices. It really is how we compensate our lawyers. And that translates into how we can treat our clients because our formula turns the decision on how to treat the client more centralized within the partner doing the work. Our goal isn't to see how much we can bill a client in a particular you know, month or given time period. The incentives we've created with our business model and our finance compensation is to incentivize the lawyer to keep the client relationship as long as possible and do whatever he or she can to do that, including, and we forgot to mention, we don't have billing quotas either. So there's a lot of room, you know, the, the almost three times the amount that the lawyer can earn at Fish and Burles versus Trishan Law creates a lot of sort of uh, margin for the lawyer to, you know, treat his client or her client better in a way that creates a long-term perspective rather than more of a short-term perspective that exists in, in traditional law. And Kevin's going to talk in a moment because he's, he's chomping at the bit, I can tell, about how our financial model promotes collaboration in a way that traditional law firms can as well. That's, you read my mind as well. Go for it, Kevin. Yeah, this guy, he could order dinner for me too. We've been together so long. He reads my mind. So I was going to say, I don't, I don't want to ask you to confess too much, but as a former managing partner of an MLaw 100 firm, you've probably had some pretty uncomfortable conversations with partners who are not happy with the draw that they're getting for the next year. They say, well, hey. Might have happened once or twice. Might yeah. have happened, yeah. And uh, that's for you, that's an uncomfortable conversation. You don't, you, you don't enjoy doing that as a, as a managing partner. We don't have that conversation in our firm. So from a management perspective, that's a load off us. But as you can imagine, what's going on behind that conversation is not only is it, hey, I'm not being compensated for what I'm worth, it's that other partner is being compensated more than he or she's worth. And that's why I'm not getting compensated. Well, that whole dynamic is removed in our law firm. There is no, I'm not getting my share because he or she's getting their share that's, that's more than their share. 
because it's formula based, our partners get along a lot better. Once you remove that financial component, I mean, counselors will tell you that the the greatest strife point in marriage is is finances. Well, you know, a partnership's about the closest thing you can get to a marriage, and it's the same. It's that that, that strife is financial. We've removed the strife so that our partners get along a lot more. In fact, we've taken it a step further. We incentivize partners to share work. They actually get paid for sharing work with other partners. So it creates an even closer bond among our partners. They get along better. Management gets along better with partners. We actually have fun when we get together. But it it also does something else that's very important to point out. It creates perhaps the most inclusive environment among any MLaw 200 law firm because Studies will show that women in particular think that they're not getting a fair shake if there's not transparency and compensation. Well, we got ultimate transparency and compensation. We have formula-based compensation, and we distribute every two weeks what everyone in the firm makes. We can do that because there's no animosity among the partners. If one partner gets a distribution in the mid-June distribution that's $100,000, a partner who only got you know, 15,000 isn't looking at them and saying, well, the only reason they got that hundred is because I got shortchanged. That doesn't happen. So there's no reason to not share that information. And at the same time, the partner who's getting the hundred thousand doesn't look at the partner who's getting the 15 and say, oh, they're a drain on the firm. It's costing me money that they're not contributing more because that's not how the firm's set up. The person who's getting 15,000 in their distribution they're contributing as a service partner, likely, or maybe this just, you know, this pay period, they didn't quite get the collections that they're looking at for the next pay period. So none of those kind of underlying conflicts come into play because of our compensation model, which makes it a lot easier to manage and to get along and to collaborate. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Now, you still have an administrative nut you've got it covered, and some of the compensation is designed to go for administration. So... There has to be some focus you guys must have on the productivity of the lawyers because while they have ultimate control over how hard they choose to work in a particular quarter because that translates directly into their income, you still got to produce 20%, I think is the number. Yeah, it's about 20%. For, over, for overhead. How do you manage that side of it without disrupting this collaborative process you're talking about? Well, fortunately, we're the only distributed firm that we're aware of that's actually achieved scale. And what I mean by that is that the 20% that the collective group contributes is more than enough to, to run our law firm. You'd be surprised the amount of expense that associates and real estate add to the bottom line. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> You've been there. If, if you eliminate those two headwinds against profitability, there's a lot of room to play. There's a lot of room to pay your lawyers more, and there's a lot of room to charge your clients less and still run an AMLA 200 law firm and still pay your equity partner. Yeah, for example, I, I think I read somewhere that even in the 08, 09 timeframe where many law firms are laying people off, you got, and I don't know how big you were at the time, but you guys did not lay anybody off even during that stretch. And I presume it's relating to the expense side, James, you're talking about. Well, we've never laid anybody off for you know, firm performance reasons. Uh, we never had to. In fact, we seem to do well in economic downturns as well as we do in economic upturns. We, like I said, we've never been upside down. 
There are years where lawyers may bill less because of the economic client climate, but they just might make less money. They're not going to get laid off. Right. For firm financial performance reasons. I want to pick back up on something Kevin uh, said earlier, because it makes sense to me that the pandemic has showed lawyers that working remotely is a viable opportunity. What has that meant for your recruiting or for the opportunity to attract people? I suspect it's been a boom for you guys. It has been. I think we added 51 partners last year in the middle of the pandemic because an obstacle to recruiting in the past was the candidate trying to come to terms with whether they could work from home. Can I get it done? Will my clients care? Well, 2020 wiped that obstacle out completely. We don't have to deal with that anymore because the candidates have seen that they can do it. Their clients are doing it. So that obstacle has been removed to recruiting. And now they're looking at the commute and they're thinking, wait a minute, if I live in White Plains, New York, why am I commuting an hour and 20 minutes each way to Manhattan? I'm losing almost three hours of my day. And I've, I just spent the last 12 months realizing that I don't have to do that to be productive. So that's an important key. I think AmLaw 200 was the second important key because now they say, okay, well, this is an AmLaw 200 firm. So not only is remote work now acceptable, but this new distributed firm now is becoming mainstream. So those obstacles have been removed. And you could say that from a credibility standpoint, 2020 has been the greatest year, probably will be the, you know, we can't top that if we exist another 300 years. When you go out and talk to lateral people coming into the firm, what are you looking for? Are you looking for particular practice specialties, books of business, character, all the above? Well, they have to have an entrepreneurial mindset for sure. I mean, that's that's first. I mean, we, we're not going to be able to recruit a partner from an AMLAW 20 firm because the client's not going to leave with that partner. So we're looking at partners who have been trusted legal advisors to their clients for 10, 15, 20 years. They're entrepreneurial minded, they're independent thinking, they're forward thinking, who want to be on the forefront. Kind of reminds me of the conversation that uh, I think it was Apple had with a Coca-Cola CEO. Couldn't convince him to join Apple and finally said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to change the world? So you know, we're looking for attorneys. They may not want to change the world, but maybe it appeals to them to be on the forefront of the, the changing legal services landscape. To be more specific, we're looking for lawyers that have AMLA 200 experience at least seven years out. Overwhelmingly, they have more because the book of business requirements in the four hundred four to $500,000 a year range, some practices don't require that much, but it's generally independent We've only got a couple minutes left. You guys tell me, where do you see yourselves five years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now? You've been on a great growth path. You see that, I assume you see that growth continuing. Where do you want to be? Well, we'll be in four additional countries and we'll be in the AMLA 100. That's it. I guess that's the easy way to say it. That's an easy way to say it. Sounds like that sounds like something I would have said about ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I used to I used to get that question a long time ago, back when we were like fifty or twenty lawyers, and you know, where do you see yourself in ten years? Let's say you know, five hundred lawyers, twenty three countries, and I, I mean, I would just say off the top of my head, 
I'd say we were, we were going to be the uh, virtual, I didn't say virtual, the distributed cloud-based Baker McKenzie. I used to say that a long time ago, but no, in all seriousness, in five, five to 10 years, we'll be way above 500 lawyers and law 100, and we will not be an outlier anymore. We'll be recognized as a, not just a legitimate business model, but a business model that is becoming more and more mainstream in the bottom half of the AMLA 200. AMLA 50 will largely remain the same, but I think there's gonna be a big breakup or shakeup among the second 150. And you see it every day with all the consolidation, which we think is sort of a race to the bottom, but there's a reason why they're doing that. They're trying to stay relevant. And you can't compete in this marketplace with rates as high as they're going with a source of overhead that don't add value to the client, like brick and mortar, for example. So, Great. And, and anyway. I, I'll, I'll add another thing that you'll probably never hear if you do another interview with an AMLAW 200 managing partner is that, you know, with the way the legal innovation is going, we may be publicly traded in five or 10 years. You never know, do you? You know, all we need is Utah to come up with some cool stuff and spread elsewhere, right? Exactly. Well, guys, we're out of time. I want to tell you how much I appreciate the chance to meet you and listen to your model. Congratulations on AMLA 200. Congratulations on your growth. And it'll be cool to watch your continued success. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.